is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The Pacific Northwest is known for a wide variety of true crime. Heck, we have an entire show dedicated to it. Sadly, one demographic is especially targeted in the areas surrounding British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon, missing and murdered Indigenous women. Today and over my next few episodes, I will be sharing the stories of the MMIW from the Yakima Nation of Washington. For the last few years, news segments, jokes, and even calendars have been made about the ridiculous holidays assigned to the 365 days of the year. There are days set aside to celebrate pickles, kindness, and even butter. Sure, it's all fun and it drives traffic to the National Day Calendar website after the news laughs at it being pretend to be a time traveler day. But some real good can come from the awareness brought by a holiday or even an entire month. November was, and will continue to be, National Native American Heritage Month. It may feel like this is a new development, but it is far from. Going back to the turn of the 20th century, Indigenous Americans have been working to earn a day of recognition. First, it was Dr. Arthur C. Parker, who worked with the Boy Scouts, who eventually celebrated a First Americans Day for three years. Red Fox James was able to get state endorsements from 24 states, of which he rode to on horseback, approving a day for Indigenous persons. Though it is reported he presented this information to the White House, there is no documentation of the day being approved. In 1915, it was declared by the Congress of the American Indian Association that the second Saturday of May would be American Indian Day. May of 1916 would be the first American Indian Day, which was only celebrated in New York. In September, though, other states acknowledged it. Thankfully, as a nation and through White House Declaration, we have started to move away from Christopher Colonizer Columbus Day to Indigenous Persons Day on October 11th. Additionally, May 5th has become a day of acknowledgement and remembrance for MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. It would take until 1990 when President Bush Sr. would designate November as National American Indian Heritage Month. You can find out all about this history at NativeAmericanHistoryMonth.gov, They have great sources for events on each day of the month, lessons for teachers, and a ton more. Bush's son would sign Native American Heritage Day into law in 2008. It falls the day after Thanksgiving annually. I guess that was maybe a way of being, well, we don't really want to get rid of Thanksgiving, but we will acknowledge how it wasn't really the picnic being portrayed in paintings for the indigenous people. National American Indian Heritage Month is a time to remind everyone how unprotected and vulnerable the indigenous population, especially its women, are. I was planning on telling the story of Rosenda Strong. Thankfully, though, a family member responded to me, and I will be telling her story in just a few weeks. Even though it is now December, I wanted to share some of the stories of MMIW just from the Yakima Nation, because acknowledging a population shouldn't be limited to one month. This list was compiled via police reports, social media, and the Yakima Herald Republic. 
They released the list this past May, and the amount of names from just this one area in one state is staggering. The Yakima Reservation itself is huge. Its eastern border is the I-82. On the west is Mount Adams. In all, it has 1,371,918 acres, a pitiful amount compared to the 10,828,800 acres that the indigenous people were forced to give up to the U.S. government. Of the 1.3 million acres available, 410,000 are shrub-stepped lands overwhelmed by the reported 15,000 or so wild horses. Even as a reservation, 80% of the land is still held in a government trust, leaving just 20% to be owned by individuals. To give you an idea of the size, the entire state of Rhode Island could fit inside the reservation. Over 8,000 people are registered to the tribe, and 13,700 people live on or near the reservation now. It's not just Yakima people who live on the land. Other tribal members are encompassed within the Confederated Tribes of Yakima Nation, including Klickitat, Paulus, Walla Walla, Wanapam, Winnetachi, and Wishram. If you know of a missing Indigenous person who is not mentioned in this episode, please email tayer at yakimaherald.com. That's Yakima with an I, as the reservation and people use Y-A-K-A-M-A. Emailing that person will make sure that everyone is listed appropriately. I won't be able to get through every case today, and some of these cases will require their own episodes, such as Resendas, but you can find the article with the full list of names on our episode blog. MMIW cases have become such an epidemic that the Washington State Patrol has even created a specialized missing indigenous persons team within the Missing and Unidentified Persons Unit. Every two weeks, the list of missing indigenous person cases is updated. The list for the state at the time of recording was sitting at just over two pages of names in very, very small print. I would also like to remind everyone that to report someone missing, there is no waiting period. If you know anything about any of these cases, please call the responsible law enforcement agency, which I will mention at the end of each story. You can also provide tips anonymously by calling the Yakima County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-248-9980, or you can go to Crime Stoppers Yakco, that's Y-A-K-C-O, as in Yakima County, dot org. Since these cases are on tribal lands, the FBI also has its hand in the investigations, so you can always send tips or information to tips.fbi.gov. While the article I found was Missing Mysterious Deaths and Murdered Yakima Residents, I wanted to separate them and will be starting with only those listed as missing. And again, this is just in Yakima County and the reservation. Something to keep in mind? In 2016, the Washington State Patrol stopped monitoring the 1,765-square-mile reservation. When tribal leaders requested the state to give up the authority they had over the reservation, it was denied. So it is still under the thumb of the state, but is not being patrolled adequately. In 2016, Frida Jane Knows His Gun was at the Kennewick Walmart on October 18th. She had called a friend requesting financial assistance. That friend agreed to send money through a money transfer service, which Frida could pick up at the Walmart. It's unclear what, if anything specific, the money was to be used for. What was known was that the 34-year-old woman with three children at home was planning on taking them trick-or-treating when Halloween came around just two weeks later. But a small mistake changed everything. Even though Frida had the best last name, maybe ever, the friend misspelled it 
meaning it wouldn't have matched Frida's ID when she went to pick up the transfer. The friend quickly corrected it, but by the time it was all straightened out, the Walmart was closed. The plan then became that Frida would go back in the morning and hopefully be able to pick up the money without issue. But she never went back for the money. Now for an example of how communication and borders can cause major holdups in finding missing people or closing a case. Frida was a member of the Crow Nation in Montana. When she traveled to Washington and disappeared, it was not easy to decipher who should be told what information or what agency would be in charge of the investigation. Responsibility usually starts with the tribal police, but that's only for community members. If a tribal member is found to have been murdered, the federal status of the land gives the case over to the FBI. Deborah Shipman, the founder of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, has said that borders are the, quote, jurisdictional nightmare. Our biggest fear when a woman is taken or a child is taken is that they leave the state. That is something that needs to be fixed. Frida's family, trying to manage a missing person from Washington while still being in Montana, has experienced this frustration firsthand. Like how even though she was reported to have been missing from the Kennewick area, she still, as in I checked for research, is not listed on Washington State's missing persons list. Are you kidding me? This is apparently due to there never having been a report made to that specific agency. You would think because we are under one government... That states would communicate And we have the internet now. It makes sense for 20, 25 years ago, like, oh, boy, that's so complicated and hard to get information back and forth. Why is everything not just digitized and you push a button and everyone's aware of what's happening? Also, again, we put the onus on the family. Uh Uh-huh. And that is bonkers to me. When you're right, it should be automated and it should be a missing persons database across the board Mm -hmm. and also when we've got like violent offenders like the one guy you just talked about who in arkansas had committed murder and with um michelle melinda's case yeah and layla stewart yeah Mm -hmm. because if people were aware maybe he wouldn't have been out doing that yeah it is shocking and then it's well by the time the family finds out by the time all of that communication is happening from the friend to the family and people going hey uh she was supposed to be home by now how much evidence is lost? Mm-hmm. Cameras are probably, you know, we re-recorded. all know that first 48 hours mm-hmm. is imperative. Yeah. And so spending that time to just figure out who should go talk to who for investigating it is ridiculous. And then imagine how much harder it is when we have forced reservations mm-hmm. that we're just trying to they're trying to make the best of. Mm-hmm. And then just like dick swinging contests of this is our jurisdiction. Well, we're not going to take that case. No, we're it's, it's it, it is hard. Yes. It is hard. Yeah. Frida's disappearance was first reported to the Crow Law Enforcement Agency, leading to her not being placed on Washington's list. That report came on November 14, 2016, nearly a month after she was supposed to pick up the money. It was at that time, when Frida missed a funeral for an aunt that she was close with, that the report was made to the Crow police. Frida's mother, Frances, told the Yakima Herald Republic that she attempted to report Frida's disappearance in Hardin, Montana. Because of her tribal status, she was sent to file the report with the Crow Agency. Crow then sent it to Bighorn County. Because it was across states, the FBI was eventually brought on board. As for all of those agencies supposedly working together, Frida's mother said in 2021 that the filing was a few years ago, and after that time, she has not received a single update from anyone. Quote, nothing. This is like everything against it because, A, this is an adult. Mm Mm-hmm. 
who is traveling between mm-hmm. states, who is in a, is affiliated with a specific tribe. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just a nightmare. And, and the dynamics, you know, sometimes hearing the mom filed it almost a month later, we don't know what their family dynamic was. Or who, how a person is. What if you're, you're not a super outgoing person or you have a very small group of friends that you interact with? There are people that have relationships with their parents that they don't talk every day. Like right. I talk to my mom every couple of days. So that's different. It would I don't take a while for my parents to know I was missing. Exactly. They might wonder why I haven't been posting on social media. Right. Like that's <laughs> Yeah. So it's like before anyone hears these dates or numbers and is like, oh, my God, they didn't care or whatever. I do just want to say that before anyone's like, oh, my God, the own mother didn't know. It's like you, we well, don't know what their relationship is. That's why was. I bring up like an adult because mm-hmm. it's, it's very different than expecting to ha- your kid to come home after exactly. school. Exactly. Exactly. Frida has now been missing for seven years, but the report is with her home police in Montana and she is not listed where she went missing in Washington. And we wonder why the numbers for MMIW incidents are so high. Maybe if things like this were fixed and it appeared law enforcement was trying, things would change. Thankfully, her case was eventually placed in the National Crime Information Center database. So if she encounters any police in any state, her name should come up as a missing person, hopefully. Frida Jane Knows His Gun sometimes uses knows gun or knows his gun as in separate words. However, she is listed in NamUs as knows his gun. Frida has brown eyes and at the time waist length brown hair that she often wore in a bun or a pony. Frida has a scar on her right elbow and a lot of tattoos. She has three names tattooed on her shoulders, which I assume are of her children, Lyrical, Trinity and Mason. She has Mickey Mouse with a basketball on her right leg, a flower and lettering on her shoulder, and two masks and a banner with Knows His Gun on her upper right arm. Her case is still being handled by the Crow Agency Bureau of Indian Affairs, and they can be reached at 406-638-2631. And isn't it wild that she was in a Walmart and they don't have anything. There's nothing like she was seen walking out and got in a car or here's who she was I'm with. I'm positive they have camera. I go to that Walmart quite often, actually. Whenever I do that yeah. drive, I usually... All Walmarts do. But it's huge. It's probably one of the biggest Walmarts I've been to. Yeah. I don't know. That's alarming to me. When you get off of the exit into Kennewick, that's mm-hmm. one of the first big things you encounter. Oh, okay. There's maybe two lights before that that are major intersections where there's restaurants. Right. But it's kind of by itself over there. There's a McDonald's, a couple other fast food restaurants, and a movie theater over And that's there. now. So who knows, you know, seven years ago. Yeah. Well, I've been doing that drive for seven years. Hasn't changed that's much. That's true. <laughs> You're a pro of I'm Kennewick, a pro. Walmart. At least that side of Kennewick. Yeah. The first exit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> much like the stories I covered in the Runaway Train series, there are some that have so much information that I have to move them to their own episode. And then there are those whose info sheet don't provide more than just a name. Eleanor Marie Trujillo's case is one such story. She was last seen in the city of Yakima on February 1st, 1996. At the time, she was 5'5", 196 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. She was 37 years old. She would now be 65. It's unclear why her name wasn't uploaded into NamUs until 2020 or why there isn't even a photo of her online, but it's worth sharing her name and demographics because maybe someone knew her and didn't realize that she had gone missing or you know something else about her case. If you know anything about Eleanor Marie Trujillo, please call the Yakima Police Department at 509-575-6200. And I keep thinking with these cases, Emily, I think about your last episode 
how the guy thought the case had been solved. Yeah. And then was like, oh, wait, that's still going on. I know information. And so that really gave me hope with this of like maybe someone heard someone went missing and then rumors were spread or misinformation and is like, no, it wasn't closed. So hopefully the same thing can happen. On the night of March 26, 2022, 40-year-old Benita Long was dropped off at the El Corral Motel in Topanish, Washington. The last time her sister heard from her, she was in the Yakima area. During a vigil after her disappearance, flyers were handed out that read, Benita's family is extremely worried and is pleading with the community of the Yakima Indian Reservation and beyond to come forward with any information that will lead to her whereabouts. At the time she was last seen, Benita was wearing a black hoodie, gray sweatpants, and had on a black backpack. She is five foot three, 130 pounds. She has brown eyes, and her dark hair was cut short at the time. Her right forearm and knuckles on both hands have tattoos. She has a burn scar on one of her legs and another scar on her chin. Yakima Nation Tribal Police are in charge of her case, and they can be reached at 509-865-2933. Her case number is 22-004079. 38-year-old Latoya Alicia Salazar was last seen on January 21st, 2023, just about one year ago. At that time, she was 4 foot 9 and 100 pounds. She has black hair, brown eyes, a butterfly tattoo on her left wrist, and the initials B.A. on her right-hand knuckles. On the right side of her neck, she has a scar. And that's all there is for information about her case. The Yakima Police Department is handling LaToya's case, and they can be reached at 509-575-6200. Her case number is 23YOO6581. Marianne Young Running Crane was believed to be living in the Yakima area, even though she was a registered member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana. She was presumably houseless while she was in Washington, and the last contact made with her was on November 15, 2021. After being unaccounted for for over a year, the 49-year-old was finally reported missing on December 30, 2022. The reason for the delay is unclear, but one can assume it had something to do with distance and perhaps her being houseless. Marianne was, at the time, 5'7 and 180 pounds. She has black hair and brown eyes. She is American Indian and Alaskan Native. She has a tattoo of a heart on her left wrist. The Yakima police are also handling her case, and you can use the reference number 22YO43511. Karen Louise John Lee Wallahi, who was 29 when she went missing, is another case with minimal information. On November 7, 1987, she went out for the night, last seen by a relative at the Lazy R Tavern in Hera, which is about 18 miles directly south from Yakima. And from the looks of it on the map, Hera makes Yakima look like a bustling metropolis. With a population of less than 600 just in 2020, it seems impossible that someone could vanish. But for those who knew and care for Karen, they know that that isn't an impossibility. That night, 37 years ago, was the last time Karen was seen. Just two days later, she would be reported missing and a reward for information was released. Since she was on tribal land, the tribal police took over the search. Nothing has come from it. Interestingly, there was a body recovered just shy of two years later in Elma, Washington, about 140 miles northwest from Hera. 
It is believed Elma Jane Doe died by being shot just about a year prior to the discovery of her body. It was also believed the body was that of a Native American or East Asian woman. Her age and stats were pretty close to Karen's, which is why someone on Reddit actually posted about it and even reached out to DNA testing networks with the suggestion that they look at Karen as a possible match. Initial DNA did come in as being almost all East Asian, so it isn't looking like it will be a match. But kudos to those armchair detectives helping to put pieces together. Tips are great, even if they just help to eliminate possibilities. There is a post on the DNA Doe Project Facebook page in regard to Alma Jane Doe. I checked in to see if there has been any progress in IDing her, as it still says that they're testing, which was posted nearly four years ago. I have yet to hear back with information, but when I do, I'll let you know. Elma's case might also be connected to a serial killer, so we will have more information on her case in an upcoming episode. If you know anything about what might have happened to Karen Louise John Lee Wallahy on November 7, 1987, please contact the Yakima Tribal Police Department at 509-865-2933. Karen was, at the time, 5 feet tall and 100 pounds. She has brown eyes and black hair. That night, she was wearing a jean jacket and a pink t-shirt. Trudy Lee Clark passed away on December 23, 2018. She was only 55 years old. And at that young age, she was the last surviving member of her immediate family. Her parents and 11 siblings had already passed. One could guess that the stress of not knowing what happened to her other sibling, Janice Marie Hannigan, had aged her heart and soul. Janice Marie Hannigan was only 16 years old when she disappeared on Christmas Eve 1971. And I find that connection of dates to be kind of interesting. You know, Janice disappearing on Christmas Eve and then her sister Trudy passing away on December 23rd, 47 years later. Attending White Swan High School, Janice was a sophomore in late 1971. She loved going to the football games and she was even a candidate for the crown of Veterans Day Queen. While she was excited about how her school life was going, her home life was not going as well. Her parents had just separated Janice was the oldest of what at the time was only seven children. Making things harder, her six siblings, including Trudy, went to live with their mother. As the oldest, Janice had stayed with her father to help care for him. On December 21st of that year, Janice went to the hospital. And it's not clear what the cause was, but her head and chest were covered with bruises. One of the only remaining pieces of transcription from the hospital is from Dr. H.D. Buckley, who wrote the discharge summary on Christmas Eve, saying, The patient was admitted to the hospital with multiple contusions around the head, has shown no evidence of any headache or loss in the level of consciousness. The contused areas show the swelling to be receding. And with that, Janice was released from the hospital. She walked out the doors and was never seen again. Thinking back to that time while talking to the Yakima Herald back in 2018, just two months before her own death, Trudy said that after Janice disappeared, she just remembers her mother crying for her daughter. Today, even with all of the conversations being had around MMIW cases, resources are limited for those directly affected. Yes, there are excellent projects like Uncovered, which has a ton of information and links for cases, if and when that information is available, and The Vanished, which is an MMIW-focused resource through the Yakima Herald. But 50 years ago? Forget about it. 
Even through the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, the conversations weren't happening, let alone research or support. So for Janice's family, there wasn't much that could be done. When you have six other young children to care for, like Trudy, who was only eight at the time, it's hard to spend the time and money necessary to bring attention to a case. For Trudy, she struggled to conjure the memories of those days through a child's perspective. It's a huge undertaking to get the ball rolling. After Trudy and Janice's mother passed away and Trudy was able to focus on her sister, she started to speak out about her case. Once she started the process of looking into her sister's case in 2014, she soon had a file of information. It held things like police reports, her birth certificate, flyers, and photos. For an example of what she was up against, there was a flyer made regarding Janice. It listed her date of disappearance as March 1st, 1971. You know, eight months before she was in the newspaper running for the Veterans Day Queen. It also had her listed as deceased on that same date. Hmm. After Janice was last seen, the rumors began. Maybe she was an emotional teenager, upset about her parents' split, and she just ran away. There was talk of her staying with a woman in Seattle. For years, people would approach Janice's mother, saying that they had seen her in other places, that she was headed home to Hera or had been spotted in Seattle. There was another report from 1975 claiming that Janice had gone to Idaho with her dad for a basketball game in February 1971 and she hadn't come back. When asked if her father could have done anything to her sister, Trudy was certain that that was not a possibility. Her father, Martin, passed away in 1989. Janice's mother, Linda, even took it upon herself to talk with some of Janice's boyfriends from the time. None of them had seen her. In later years, Trudy submitted her DNA to NamUs in case her sister was ever found. Trudy had a hunch that if something had happened to Janice, the perpetrator, if they had killed her, may have buried her on land that the family was leasing to a farmer. In the far back area of the acreage, there was a burn pit and an outdoor toilet. Trudy even sent a letter to the farmer asking him to dig a little deeper than usual, just in case. She also asked police to bring cadaver dogs to the area. She did not get an answer from either before her own death. As Trudy continued her search efforts, she had some doubters. They would tell her to move on, to let go, and to let her sister rest in peace. In response, she said, rest in peace where? I don't know if she's alive or dead. If she's dead, I want to bring her home to our cemetery. That cemetery being the Topanish Creek Cemetery where her father was buried. Yeah, that's very hurtful. To I say don't that understand to that at all. How do you just get over something that is so unknown? All I hear in that is it makes me uncomfortable. I don't yep. want to have to deal with your emotions about that anymore yep. and or my own emotions about it. That's exactly right. With no one left in the immediate family to keep the search for Janice going, it seems there may never be answers for those who loved her. Of course, that was not the only traumatic loss experienced by Trudy or her family. On February 15th, 2017, her niece, Linda Sally Dave, was found laying in the water under the Marion Drain Bridge on Highway 97, which is just outside Topanish. Some DOT workers were inspecting the bridge when they found the body. She had been shot in the abdomen approximately six weeks prior. Linda was also a member of the Yakima Nation. She loved to cook, dance, fish, being around her grandchildren, her family, and all of their traditions. At just 39 years old, she left behind her seven children. Although family members claimed that they had sent in dental records not long after the report of a body being found, Linda was not identified until March of 2018, one year and one month later. From what I could find, there is no information available regarding her murder. 
Poignantly, the last thing printed in that article from Trudy is her saying, if anyone knows anything about where my sister is or where she was last seen, please, please come forward. Both my mom and dad never got closure before passing on. I would like to have closure before I too am gone. She never got that closure, but hopefully by sharing Janice's story, someone will come forward with information that will allow for the rest of her family to find their own peace. Anyone with any information about Janice Marie Hannigan, who at 16 was last seen on Christmas Eve 1971, is asked to contact the Yakima Tribal Police Department. Thankfully, more and more attention is being brought to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people, especially the women. In turn, more money is being dedicated to stopping these crimes and more research is being done to educate the public. I have mentioned some of the resources, such as Uncovered, You can do what we did and become a member. It's actually an amazing database for unsolved cases, and they can use all of the support, especially financially, that they can get. Thevanished.org is another great place to go to for stories, cases, and resources. This site is focused solely on the plight of those living on or near the Yakima Reservation. Thevanished.org is supported by the Yakima Valley Community Foundation. From their website, To make a charitable contribution to the Yakima Valley Community Foundation's Community Journalism Fund, visit the Foundation's website and select the Give Today button. On the sidebar, click the Find Opportunities button and enter Journalism in the word search, and the fund will open up. Donors can also send checks and stocks directly to the Yakima Valley Community Foundation. And I would also like to take a moment to thank Tammy Ayer. I have not spoken with her or interacted with her, She is a journalist for the Yakima Herald Republic and the editor for The Vanished. She has covered so many cases of MMIW, and she's really focused her career on shining a light on these stories from the Yakima Reservation, and all of her information was super helpful in telling these stories. Once again, if you know anything about any of these cases or think you might have a tip, no matter how small or useless or old you might think it is, it could be the missing piece of the puzzle to closing a case or perhaps even getting a case going. As we've always said to anyone wondering why we would need to share cases that are older, I ask you, at what point would you give up looking for someone you loved? So again, these are just the missing women from Yakima Nation of Washington. My next episode will be the mysterious deaths that need some information. And then after that will be the unsolved murder cases just from that space, which I think really gives an idea of the scope of the MMIW epidemic. Oh, yeah. If this is one one area. Yeah. This is one tribe of people. This is one reservation in one state. And this is the current list of missing. That is accurate. I do these cases occasionally on TikTok. And I did a video where I mentioned the over 1,400 missing indigenous women from the Pacific Northwest and Alaska areas. And a number of tribe members are like, that's not even close. That not even close. Yeah. Because it's not accurately tracked. People have had enough. They're getting exactly. Mad. And it's there's just... more and more podcasts shedding light yeah. on it and more and more people on social media talking about their family members. I've met several sisters or mothers or uncles on TikTok alone who are like, please cover this family member's case because we just aren't getting anywhere. Yeah. 
And, and then, until there's outrage nationally, mm -hmm. then people start paying attention. Yeah. One of the articles I read was uh, about Gabby Petito, you know, again, going back to that, how these families were sitting there going, hey, we appreciate that that's getting coverage and that people are trying to find this girl. While you're at it, here are my family members in that same area that are missing. Could and I, I did that on TikTok, too, when that was happening, because it was like so ridiculous how many people in that area we're getting zero coverage and there are people of color. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it, too, this is my just my personal perception. I don't understand reservation life. I'm not educated in what that life is really like. And so there's this like disconnect or like a, if we keep it, if we keep it feeling different or separated, then people won't be as invested. Well, yes. And there are people trying not to. Like, I remember we were actively recruiting on reservations for our anthropology department because we wanted archaeologists who are Native because there's so much collaboration between uh, archaeologists and tribal members in this country because there's a lot of laws. There's NAGPRA where you need to have somebody from the tribe if you run into any skeletal remains or anything oh. like your hands off. NAGPRA comes in. Tribal people need to be there to because that's likely somebody right. that belongs to them. Right. Oh, so how interesting. You shut down a dig until that can be identified. Right. That's how it works. So some places work really well and closely. So the universities do a really good job working with tribes. I think I just mean like on a daily level, like just yeah, to an I'm average saying, person wish... that's not near a reservation. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm very uneducated in that. And people can self-educate. Like yeah. I started with one of my favorite movies, Smoke Signals. Mm. And then I just became obsessed with learning as much as I could about tri the tribes in our area and tribal life and how it works on a reservation. The thing, too, that other case I was mentioning, the issue that they were talking about is how many people live nearby and just go to the reservation to fuck around because there's kind of this lawlessness because if you're not local then the tribal police don't really mess with you and or can't. Well, and it depends on it depends on the crime too right they they might not care about them have you watched reservation dogs on no Hulu? it's on our dvr highly though I highly recommend i was just gonna say what is cool is the accessibility to education like there are so many shows now and obviously grain of salt because it's entertainment and, and it's but, a comedy but it's all native actors that's and really it, cool it definitely has little glimpses into yeah and what's the other one dark Dark Winds. Yeah, Dark Winds, another one we've got recorded that I've got to watch. But yeah, I think um, I think it's there's very a lot cool of to see self-education people can do. But you're right. It is very isolated from like an everyday life. We yeah. don't understand. So it's just shock when I pulled up this list. I mean, not shocking, I guess, but I don't know what the word is where it's you depressing. pull up the list for one space. And it's unfortunately, it's, it's always not shocking. It's completely overwhelming. Every overwhelming. Time. Yeah. Yes. Overwhelming is a good way to yeah. put it. Yeah. I'm sure that there are investigators that are invested in it and do care and are trying. And maybe they're in tribal police so they don't actually get to do any of this aspect. Or the FBI comes in and shuts this down. Just keeping it so messy is really, really, I think, one of the biggest issues. It is. But the more that this is in major media yeah. and on social media, so younger generations are getting mm -hmm. active into it the better in the long term. We're going to see more collaboration. So I I do have high hopes that the amount of people talking about it is going to eventually help the law. I think so. Yeah. 
I, or I hope so, at least, that people will support it. If it comes to be a law or something to even vote it on or budget or something to be like, yeah, we've got to change this because it doesn't matter if someone's on a reservation or from a different heritage or whatever. At the same time, until we fix some of the major flaws in our systems, both sides, even with collaborations, like how far can you get? And there's so many other components. You do have houselessness issues. You do have addiction issues because of what we have done as far as the schools and the reservation, all of the things, you sure, know, yeah, the systemic issues well, there's that a also lack need of to trust be. too. Like, why should they oh, trust yeah. a police officer when mm-hmm. they've been forced onto a reservation and forced into eating the food that they were mm-hmm. for? You know, it's just the health issues that stem from being forced to eat what what white people put onto them. I, it's just so sad all around. Oh my god, that reminds me of the Marshall Islands. So out in the Marshalls, which is kind of between Australia and Hawaii, they used to have these amazing crops and they grew everything and fresh fruit and, you know, all of that. And then that was also Bikini Atoll, which is home of SpongeBob, Bikini Mm -hmm. Bottom, is where they did all the nuclear testing. And so it killed all the crops. So when you go to the grocery store, it's literally just boxes of leftover American food. Mm -hmm. Like I went there in late January and the candy aisle was literally pallets of Reese's Christmas trees. Oh my goodness. Because that's what I got. So same idea where it's like, oh, hey, sorry about that, but we'll feed you. Have a can of Spam. And then they were like having issues with uh, high blood pressure and diabetes. And that's another thing that comes up in smoke signals. It tackles like some of the stereotypes that are accurate because of what happened. Right, yeah. Well, I'll have to go watch that. I cannot express how much I love that movie. I feel like everyone needs to okay, watch it. Okay, I'll and watch it. There are books too the there that stems from a book. There's another one I really like, the Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven. Oh, so I was really into Native American literature in college. It was there were some classes I took at Oregon State, and I I cannot express how like they're life changing those books because it's a culture we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But should, because it's like part of us. You're the first person I've ever heard reference smoke signals in a conversation. (laughs) That's very cool. I've seen it as well. It's great. Well, and you know, when I started dating someone who is Native American, I I asked, I go, do you know that movie? He's like, yeah, I love that movie. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Good. Oh, and the the star of it is the guy from Adam Beach from Joe Dirt, who's the guy guy at the fireworks (gasps) stand that turns into dust. Snakes and sparkling. Yes. Poop. Out of all these poops shall come gold. What's yours? Oh, yours is Tacoma. We were talking about Tacoma last night. We're like, Tacoma's knucking futs mm, is what Tacoma it's, is. It's up there in terms of um, missing folks these days. Everything. Pierce County brings it. Yeah, Pier- they don't fuck around. <laughs> Email. 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 Except I say unit twice. Oh, that's all right. You just really like units. Unit. Give me your unit. It's okay. It was deep in my unit. How embarrassing if one of (laughs) us did that. It's cuffin season. You know what I mean. I want a big boy, a big boy. You know that TikTok viral song. Of course. Police in Montana. Montana. My favorite place. (laughs) But the report is with her home. But the report is with her home police in Montana. Oh my God, I can't say Montana. Stop now. trying to make Montana happen. <laughs> this is my daughter, Montana. <laughs> Please, if you if you ever get another pet or a child, you must. Montana. 
appearance. It was. I'm so sorry. It's okay. <clears throat> That's not okay. It would have been more than a two. Oh, it would have sounded like a broken soft serve machine. <laughs> Even through the 80s, 90s, and early and, and today. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>